0: Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy.
1: Hello Sixpackers and welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 28. Did you watch the Independence Day celebration in Washington on the 4th? Did you hear the President honoring our history and military? I did, and it brought tears to my eyes. Let's face it, Donald Trump isn't an eloquent orator. Heck, he's not even a good orator. Yet this man's tribute to America brought tears to my eyes nonetheless. I became teary-eyed because he recounted some of the highlights of our rich American history and reminded us of American exceptionalism, why we're such a great nation. I think about the America I grew up in, then I see how the left is trying to tear it down today. It breaks my heart to see what they're trying to do to our country. It makes me very sad and immensely angry with a righteous indignation. Prior to the President's address, on the lawn of the Capitol, Moms for America held a rally in support of freedom and against our nation becoming a socialist country. Moms for America is a group made up of gold star mothers, moms who've lost their sons fighting terrorism, fighting for our nation. There was one mom who addressed the crowd who I thought was particularly good. Gold star mom Amanda Jacobs, a black mother whose Marine Corps son died fighting in the Middle East and whose 17-year-old son is now training to fight just like his brother did, summed it all up with one thing she said about American-hating Colin Kaepernick, the NFL quarterback who has built a new and lucrative career by refusing to stand for our national anthem. Mrs. Jacobs said, And when I look at this country today, and I wanted to say this loud so many times, Colin Kaepernick was getting paid $14 million a year to throw a ball. My son died for $14,000 a year, and he's given more than any football player any athlete has ever given. Bravo, Mrs. Jacobs. Her son sacrificed for something more than football. He gave us all for something bigger than himself, and she wants the world to know it and that she's proud of it. Left us be damned. So in this episode, we're going to continue our tribute to America by looking at some of the highlights of a time in American history most Americans either have forgotten or never knew, a time when Americans gave their lives for our nation. We're going to look at the War of 1812, sometimes referred to as America's Second Revolution. I'll fill you in when we get back.
0: What did Billy D. Williams, the celebrated American artist Norman Rockwell and famed comedian Jimmy Durante have to do with one man's journey from conservative Judaism to the cross? Everything. Marty Barrick has lived one of the most fascinating conversion journeys ever told. In Calvary Road, Marty's biography, you can read about Marty's military service with Billy V. Williams, how Norman Rockwell helped him pass a college course, how, in his deep abiding love for his late wife, Marty helped Irene travel the road of sanctity. How the times are quickly reaching critical mass for fulfilling prophecy concerning the Jews, and much, much more. Get your copy of Calvary Road by Marty Barrick today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo.
1: The War of 1812 took place between 1812 and 1815. It was the second time we had to fight the British, but this time it was because of their interference in American trade, the lifeblood of our fledgling economy. The battles of the War of 1812 were fought on both land and sea. The land battles occurred in North America, and the naval battles occurred on both the Atlantic and Pacific. The war officially came to an end when the Treaty of Ghent was signed in December of 1814, but news traveled slowly in those days, so fighting continued into early 1815. Here's a timeline of the War of 1812, beginning with the things leading up to the war. On February 1, 1799, France declares war on Great Britain. Great Britain, in turn, declares war on France. Great Britain begins to Shanghai American sailors to force them to serve in the British navy. Great Britain and France began to block the United States from trading with the other to prevent supplies from getting into enemy hands. In January, eighteen o six, Secretary of State James Madison delivers a report discussing British interference in American trade and the Shanghaiing of American sailors, fueling anti British sentiments. On April 18, 1806, the Non-Importation Act is passed, which placed restrictions on British imports. On November 21, 1806, Napoleon issued the Berlin Decree, which forbade the import of British goods into European countries allied with or dependent on France. On June 22, 1807, the British ship Leopold fires on the American ship the Chesapeake, which escalates tensions between the two countries. On December 22, 1807, Thomas Jefferson imposes an embargo on Great Britain and France by closing all U.S. ports to export shipping and places restrictions on British imports. In 1809, President James Madison ends the embargo due to its devastating effects on the economy. On March 1, 1809, the Non-Intercourse Act is signed into law. The act prohibited the trade between Great Britain and its allies and with France and the countries controlled by France. On November 7, 1811, the Battle of Tippecanoe takes place, which is considered the first battle of the War of 1812. Here's where it begins to get interesting. In early June 1812, President James Madison sent a message to Congress in which he listed complaints about the British shanghai American sailors, harassment of American merchant ships by British warships, and British blockades of American ships bound for European ports. On June 18, 1812, the United States declared war on Great Britain. June through August of 1812, riots break out in Baltimore in protest of the war. Nothing new there. We're still doing the same thing today. On July 12, 1812, U.S. forces under General William Hall enter Canada in the first of three failed attempts to invade Canada. On August 16, 1812, General Hull surrenders Fort Detroit to the British without a fight. A cowardly act as any American general has ever done. However, in September 1813, U.S. General William Henry Harrison, the future president, recaptured Detroit. On August 19, 1812, the first major naval encounter of the War of 1812 took place between the USS Constitution and the HMS British Guerriere. The two ships were both rated as frigates and carried a similar armaments. The British captain was sure of victory, and before the encounter, he was reported to have said, There is a Yankee frigate. In 45 minutes, she is ours. Take her, and I promise you four months' pay. As the two ships approached each other, the British kept up a steady fire on long-range cannon fire. The early shell bounced off the hull of the Constitution without causing any damage. It said that a cry went up, Hurrah! Her sides are made of iron. Thus, her name soon became Old Ironside. When the two ships were 25 feet apart, the American Commodore gave the order to open fire. The cannon hit the Guerrero with devastating effect. Within a short time, all the masts of the Guerrero were down, and the British had no choice but to surrender. While the victory of the Constitution militarily was a modest success, its political effect was substantial. It solidified support from New England for the war effort and countered the poor war news coming from the Canadian Front. On October 13, 1812, Great Britain issues an order in council authorizing British military forces to conduct general reprisals against the military forces, merchant shipping, and people of the United States. The order is considered a declaration of war. Less than five months after sinking the Guerrero on December 29, 1812, the Constitution engaged a second British frigate, this time about 30 miles off the coast of Brazil. Under the command of Captain William Bainbridge, Old Ironsides was outfitted with 54 guns and sailed under Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton's directive to annoy the enemy and afford protection to our commerce. At 2 p.m., the Constitution opened fire on the Java, a 38-gun ship that was smaller and faster than her adversary, commanded by Captain Henry Lambert. The Java's opening salvo damaged the Constitution's rigging and spars and wounded Bainbridge. Raking fire from the Java to the American frigate's stern shattered the helm and killed or injured the four helmsmen wounded a second time in the thigh bainbridge passed steering orders to marines in the ship's tiller room who moved the rudder using a block and tackle setting the fore and main courses the constitution closed fast and delivered a broadside that destroyed the Java's bowsprit cap jib boom and head sails When the British frigate's bowsprit became entangled in the imposing vessel's mizzen rigging, Bainbridge seized the opportunity to fire a final broadside. The Constitution's boarding party salvaged the helm from the dismantled Java to be outfitted aboard Old Ironsides. In his journal kept aboard the Constitution, Bainbridge described the final moments of the battle that led to the Java's surrender shortly before sinking got very close to the enemy in very effectual raking position, athwart his bows, and was at that very instance of raking him when he most prudently struck his flag, for he had suffered the broadside to have raked him. His additional loss must have been extremely great as he laid unmanageable wreck upon the water. As many as sixty British seamen were killed in action, including Captain Lambert. The Constitution lost only nine. Following this battle, the British Admiralty, then the world's foremost maritime superpower, decreed their warships would no longer engage American frigates in combat unless in squadron force, that is, two or more to one. Only 25 years after our constitutional establishment, the United States is becoming a dominant and feared force on the high seas. On April 27, 1813, the Battle of York takes place in present-day Toronto. The British are defeated and American troops occupy the city for six days, looting homes and setting fire to the shipyard, government house, and parliament building. On April 28 to May 9, 1813, the Siege of Fort Meigs takes place in northwestern Ohio. The British, under command of General Henry Proctor, arrive to begin the Siege of Fort Meigs. Traveling down from Fort Malden, they made camp in the ruins of old Fort Miami's on the north side of the Maumee River. On the morning of May 1st, British artillery opened fire on the American installation. The bombardment carried on for five days, but the Americans within the fort held on until reinforcements in the form of 1,200 Kentucky militia arrived along the Maumee. These reinforcements fought several engagements on both sides of the river. Wednesday, May 5, 1813, marked the bloodiest day of the siege. During the course of the fighting, nearly 600 men were lost to a combined force of British regulars, Canadian militia, and Native American warriors. Despite this major loss to the Americans, however, many Native Americans lost interest in the siege. After a few more days, the British and their native allies were forced to withdraw, leaving the Americans with a victory. On September 10, 1813, the Battle of Lake Erie takes place on Lake Erie off the coast of Ohio. It was the first unqualified defeat of a British naval squadron in history. U.S. Captain Oliver Hazard Perry leads a fleet of nine American ships to victory over a squadron of six British warships at the Battle of Lake Erie. The battle was closely contested for hours. Perry's flagship, Lawrence, was reduced to a defenseless wreck, so he then transferred to the Niagara and sailed directly into the British line, firing broadsides and forcing the British to surrender. Perry had won a complete victory at the cost of 27 Americans killed 96 wounded. British casualties, on the other hand, were 40 dead and 94 wounded. After the battle, Perry sent a famous dispatch to U.S. General William Henry Harrison that read, We have met the enemy, and they are ours. The Battle of Lake Erie forced the British to abandon Detroit, earning U.S. control over Lake Erie and the territorial Northwest. On October 5, 1813, the Battle of the Thames takes place in Ontario, Canada, during which Shawnee Chief Tecumseh is killed. On July 5, 1814, the Battle of Chippewa takes place in Ontario, Canada. It was a decisive victory for America. On July 22, 1814, the Treaty of Greenville is signed, which establishes peace between several native tribes and the United States. It also forms an alliance between the tribes of the Americans against the British. In August, peace negotiations begin in Ghent, Belgium. On August 24, 25, 1814, the British burned Washington, D.C., including the White House and the U.S. Capitol Building, in retaliation for the burning of York. President James Madison had to flee the Capitol. On September 11, 1814, British are defeated at the Battle of Plattsburgh, also known as the Battle of Lake Champlain in New York. September 12 through 15, 1814, the Battle of Baltimore takes place in Maryland, during which Fort McHenry is bombarded by the British. Francis Scott Key writes the first lines of his famous poem, The Star-Spangled Banner, after witnessing the bombardment of Fort McHenry. On Christmas Eve in 1814, the Treaty of Ghent is signed, which officially brings the War of 1812 to an end. On December 28, the Treaty of Ghent is ratified by the British, but fighting continues because of the time it took to inform the military forces on both sides. Now, in my opinion, the highlight of the War of 1812. On January 8 through 18, 1815, the British are defeated in the Battle of New Orleans in Louisiana. The two sides met in what is remembered as one of the war's biggest and most decisive engagements. In the Bloody Battle of New Orleans, future President Andrew Jackson and a motley assortment of militia fighters, frontiersmen, slaves, Indians, and even pirates weathered a frontal assault by a superior British force, inflicting devastating casualties along the way. In December 1814, British forces mobilized for what they hoped would be the campaign's finishing blow. After defeating Napoleon in Europe earlier that year, Great Britain had redoubled its efforts against its former colonies and launched a three-pronged invasion of the United States. American forces had managed to stop two of the incursions at the battles of Baltimore and Plattsburgh, but now the British planned to invade New Orleans, a vital seaport considered the gateway to the United States' newly purchased territory in the West. If it could seize the Crescent City, the British Empire would gain dominion over the Mississippi River and hold trade of the entire American South under its thumb. Standing in the way of the British advance was Major General Andrew Jackson, who had rushed to New Orleans' defense when he heard an attack was in the work. Named Old Hickory for his legendary toughness, Jackson had spent the last year subduing hostile Creek Indians in Alabama and harassing the Redcoats' operations along the Gulf Coast. The general had no love for the British, and he was itching for a chance to confront them in battle. I owe to Britain a debt of retaliatory vengeance, he told his wife. Should our forces meet, I trust I shall pay that debt. After British forces were sighted near Lake Bourne, Jackson declared martial law in New Orleans and ordered that every available weapon and able-bodied man be brought to bear in the city's defense. His force soon grew into a 4,500-strong patchwork of army regulars, frontier militiamen, free blacks, New Orleans aristocrats, and Choctaw tribesmen. After some hesitation, Old Hickory even accepted the help of Jean Lafitte, a dashing pirate who ran a smuggling and privateering empire. Jackson's ramshackle army was to face off against some 8,000 British regulars, many of whom had served in the Napoleonic Wars. Commanding was Lieutenant General Sir Edward Pakenham, a respected veteran of the Peninsular War and brother-in-law to the Duke of Wellington. The two sides first came to blows on December 23rd when Jackson launched a daring nighttime attack on British forces bivouacked nine miles south of New Orleans. Despite their imposing fortifications, Lieutenant General Pakenham believed the Dirty Shirts, as the British called the Americans, would wilt before the might of a British army in formation. They didn't. Pakenham had counted on moving under the cover of morning mist, but the fog had risen with the sun, giving American rifle and artillerymen clear sight lines. Cannon fire soon began slashing gaping holes in the British line, sending men and equipment flying. As the British troops continued the advance, their ranks were riddled with musket shot. General Jackson watched the destruction from a perch near the right side of the line, bellowing, Give it to them, my boys. Let us finish this business today. Old Hickory's militiamen, having honed their aim hunting in the woods on the frontier, fired with sickening precision. Red-coated soldiers fell in waves with each American volley, many with multiple wounds. One stunned British officer later described the American rampart as resembling a row of fiery furnaces. Peckinham's plan was quickly unraveling. His men had barely stood their ground amid the chaos of the American deluge, but a unit carrying ladders and wood fascines needed to scale through a line Jackson had set up was lagging behind. Packenham took it upon himself to lead the outfit to the front, but in the meantime his main formation was cut to ribbons by rifle and cannon fire. When some of the Redcoats began to flee, one of Pakenham's subordinates unwisely tried to wheel the 93rd Highlanders Regiment to their aid. American troops quickly took aim and unleashed a maelstrom of fire that felled more than half the unit, including its leader. Around that same time, Pakenham and his entourage were laced by a blast of grape shot. The British commander perished minutes later. The assault on Jackson's fortifications was a fiasco, costing the British some 2,000 casualties, including three generals and seven colonels, all of it in the span of only 30 minutes. The British withdrew. Amazingly, Jackson's ragtag outfit had lost less than 100 men. Future President James Monroe would later praise the general by saying, History records no example of so glorious a victory obtained with so little bloodshed on the part of the victorious. Shortly before the British withdrawal, Andrew Jackson re-entered New Orleans to the sound of Yankee Doodle and a public celebration worthy of Mardi Gras. Newspapers in the beleaguered city of Washington, D.C. labeled him a national savior. The festivities only continued the following month, as news of the Treaty of Ghent reached American shores. When Congress ratified the agreement on February 16, 1815, the War of 1812 came to an official end. Addressing his troops shortly after the battle, he hailed their undaunted courage in saving the country from invasion and said, Natives of different states acting together for the first time in this camp have reaped the fruits of an honorable union. Most Americans have either forgotten the War of 1812 or they never learned about it. What's most sad about this is the War of 1812 demonstrates the American spirit for liberty above all other wars since the Revolution. Our constitutional government was a mere 25 years old at the outbreak of the war, so almost everything we had militarily was ragtag. But as Andrew Jackson and his men proved at the Battle of New Orleans, Americans will fight to the death to preserve the one thing they love above all else freedom. I've always been a patriot all my life, and I began following politics in 1968 when I was still a boy. I began with an affiliation to the Democratic Party, but like Ronald Reagan, I left the Democratic Party. In fact, like Reagan, I felt like I hadn't left the Democratic Party, but rather that it had left me. So I became a Reagan Republican in 1980. But most of the politicians who wrote into office on Reagan's coattails have betrayed the conservative principles he revived in the Republican Party. That's why I don't identify with either party, but call myself a constitutional conservative. I identify as a constitutional conservative because, like many millions of Americans, I demand a return to the Constitution. American politics used to be a battle of ideas among the two major parties. But over the last few years, we've seen a shift in the Democratic Party that's pitting American against American. I feel like Rip Van Winkle in the Washington Irving story, who slept for 20 years and woke to find a country completely different from the one that existed when he fell asleep. I don't recognize America anymore. The only American reality we have to cling to anymore is the Constitution. The nation is in the fledgling stages of a new civil war. The liberals have divided us as a nation, all while telling the lie that it is we who have divided our people. They want to have open borders so anyone can come into America, including criminals and terrorists. They've forced abortion down our throats they made us to feel like bigots for standing up against the morally and socially destructive LBGT ideologies. They're moving now to normalize and legalize pedophilia. They want us to surrender our guns and along with them our liberty. They've made no secret of their hatred for America and its constitutional principles. They openly attack Christianity and Judaism. As a Catholic American, I'm vehemently opposed to everything they promote and stand for, as we all should. I'm also vehemently opposed to the violence a new civil war will bring. However, please don't confuse my opposition to violence with pacifism. Pacifism is a heresy. I believe, then, that we may very well have to fight for our liberty just as the brave men in the Revolution and the War of 1812 had to do. If and when the time comes that we have to fight for our liberty, there'll be no such thing as begging off because you're too old or too disabled or too young. I'm just a crippled old man, mostly bound to a wheelchair with only one usable arm. But that won't stop me from exercising the courage it takes to defend the Catholic Church and our liberty. No matter your circumstances and excuses, you can't sit on the sidelines either. There's so much we can do now to possibly avert violence later. I write books and do this podcast. I comment on online articles, then use social media to promote the ideas of freedom. You can do lots of things, too. You can write as I do, because writing is nothing more than speaking on paper. You can get more deeply involved in the political process. You can support through word and deed and with your financial resources, the Article 5 Convention of States movement, as well as other constitution-promoting movements. Now is the time for all good Americans to come to the aid of our country. Now is the time to work to save our nation. The Catholic Church in America will cease to exist if we fail to work towards saving our country now. You cantankerous Catholic listeners are all good Catholics and patriotic Americans. It's time to put your Catholicism and patriotism to work to put them to the test. We'll continue our tribute to America next week. I've been sharing the faith with people for over 30 years. The Holy Spirit has used me to make hundreds of converts and 84 of them are my adult godchildren. When the Holy Spirit works through us in a big way, he usually uses the talents given to us before we were even born. When we develop those talents for him, we're often impelled to pass on to others what we've done and how we've done it for the greater glory of God. That's why I wrote the Lay Evangelist Handbook. You might say the lay evangelist handbook was 30 years in the making, because in this book I share with you all the best that I've learned about how to share the faith with laps and non-Catholics so you can bring your friends and family to the fullness of divinely revealed truth. The very first chapter gives you a thorough explanation of the things you need to do to maximize your effectiveness so you won't end up with egg on your face when trying to engage people. I explain the differences between the various types of lay evangelists and others you can learn from. I even talk about some statistics that should help give you a real sense of urgency for sharing the faith. Then I get to the step-by-step process for sharing the faith. I give a full presentation of the exact text I've used and refined for 30 years. I tell you what to do, what to say, and how to do and say it, while leaving room for you to work in your own personality and make these techniques your own. There's no other book like this on the market. So get your print or ebook copy of the Lay Evangelist Handbook today. It's available in print on cantankerouscatholic.com or in print and ebook on Amazon and Barnes and Noble.
0: Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five.
1: Hats off to the Western Journal. In a ceremony at the White House, Army Staff Sergeant David Balevia became the first living individual to be awarded the Medal of Honor for the Iraq War. And believe me, it's one heck of a story. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes.
0: Catholic Catholic News Pick Number 4.
1: Hats off to LifeSite News. Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy has a message for the state's Supreme Court. He said if you're going to force taxpayers to fund abortion, that money is coming out of your budget. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes.
0: Catholic Catholic News Pick Pick Number number 3
1: Hats off to LifeSite News. Despite nonstop promotion from corporations, the mainstream media, the entertainment industry, and progressive politicians, a new set of polls seems to indicate that younger Americans are growing increasingly uncomfortable with the growing extremism of the LGBTQ movement. Additionally, as the movement shifts into post-gay marriage era and begins to radicalize around gender fluidity, transgenderism, and the rejection of science in favor of self-identification, many of those who were neutral or supportive are deciding that this is where they get off the train. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes.
0: Catholic Catholic News Pick Number number 2
1: Hats off to LifeSite News. A family court has decided that a married homeschooling couple should be allowed custody of their minor children. Homeschoolers Dirk and Petra Vundela lost legal custody of their four children in August of 2013 when police removed the children from their home. Thanks to a recent court decision, the guardianship of the only two remaining minors in the family has been returned to the parents, thanks be to God. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes.
0: Catholic Catholic News Pick pick Number 1
1: off to Breitbart. Gold star mom Amanda Jacobs spoke at the pro-freedom, anti-socialist rally for freedom in the nation's capital on Independence Day morning and honored her heroic son, who lost his life fighting for liberty. She reminded everyone that he, along with other fallen heroes, has given more than any athlete has ever dreamed of. You can read the whole story and listen to this woman's remarkable testimony by clicking the link in my show notes. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. A neighbor of Farmer Jones came to him and said, Johnny Williams took a wagon load of apples from your orchard. Who told you, the farmer asked. The informer said that he'd heard the story from Joe Spike. Farmer Jones went to see Jones Spike and asked him, Did you see Johnny Williams steal a wagon load of apples from my orchard? Goodness, no, replied Joe. What I heard was that he took a wheelbarrow full. Steve Pepper told me that. When Farmer Jones asked Steve Pepper, he answered, All I said was that he took a pocketful of your apples. Gertie Gabby told me that. Gertie Gabby said, I said he took one of your apples. Lizzie Lizard told me that. Lizzie Lizard said, Johnny Williams was talking to me the other day and mentioned that your apples were ripe and it was about time somebody picked them. If you can't say anything good about a person, don't say anything at all keep your yap shut. Especially don't tell lies that may harm the good name and reputation of another person. Hey, Six Packers, that's all for this episode. I've enjoyed having you with me. Don't forget to like me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. The links are in my show notes. Also, remember to visit JoeSixPackAnswers.com to sign up for my free email course. Each short lesson arrives in your inbox every three days. We also have the Cantankerous Catholic social media group you can join to discuss anything about Catholicism, our country, or anything else on your mind. I visit the page every day. The link's also in my show notes. There are lots of other neat things of interest in my show notes, too. You can find them at cantankerouscatholic.com. And remember to live by the Joe Sixpack battle cry. Comfort and conviction don't live on the same block. This has been the Cantankerous
0: Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.